you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. It is Thursday, May 19th, live from my apartment and his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. I'm DJ Nate, filling in for the one and only Dr. D. On today's show, we have editor and writer for In These Times magazine, Miles Kampf Lassen. And now, your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Truth Be Told Thursday, and here's why. Apropos to absolutely nothing, ladies and gentlemen, about an hour before I came uh, on the air to do this show, I made the mistake of making a phone call to an old friend I had talked to in many, many years. When I say I made the mistake, the mistake was not calling the guy to talk to him because it was an illuminating conversation that really just like has been resonating in my brain ever since I had it. But it was a mistake in that it totally distracted me from the show I'm about to do. So I, I fill my head with a lot of information. This is, a, uh, by the way, a little trick for any of you wannabe podcasters out there. Don't fill your head with information uh, right before you do a podcast if the information is not directly related to the podcast, because then you're going to want to talk to your guest about the thing that you just filled your head with. And I'm looking at my guest, and he won't know absolutely anything about what I'm going to talk about. But don't worry, guest. Everything we talked about, we're going to talk about, I want to talk about. I've got a weird brain, ladies and gentlemen. It's like I'm constantly filling it with different things. Like last night, if you would talk to me at about 10, it was filled with all sorts of useless information for a political podcast regarding uh, the Golden State Warriors versus um, the Dallas Mavericks and how worthless the Dallas Mavericks looked. And uh, it doesn't help me in any way. Although, knowing my guest right now, uh, <laughs> He could probably launch into that conversation. But anyway, uh, going back to what I began, uh, shout out to Tom Brune, legendary journalist. Now, worked in Chicago for many years for the Chicago Sun-Times uh, and worked with me many, many years ago as my editor uh, at the uh, Reporter, a newsletter dedicated to relations. And he told me an interesting tale about the uh, publisher of the Reporter, the guy who got me got started in the game, John McDermott, uh, and his connection to daily and politics. And I don't want to give the whole story away because Tom is writing an article about it, and I don't want to scoop uh, another writer. But, man, what a fascinating story about the intersection in the 1960s between the Daily Machine uh, and uh, civil rights adv- uh, activists and how the Daily, Richard J. Daly, ladies and gentlemen, really try to use all of his power to, what, preserve and protect his power. And we were at that moment critical juncture in the road, which we're at all the time in the city of Chicago, where we had to decide whether we're going to do the right thing or the wrong thing. We knew what the right thing was, like to foster integration, to uh, spread money, to eradicate inequities, to really make an investment into our poorest communities, uh, to try to break down the walls of segregation that keep black from white. We knew what the right thing was to do, but we did the wrong thing. We created more walls of segregation. We fostered more inequities. We looked the other way at uh, police uh, abuse, including torture in the 80s. <laughs> uh, we, we underfunded our schools instead of putting more money into our schools. Uh, so it all just came flooding back as I was recollecting events from the late 60s and early 70s that were so pivotal uh, in Chicago history and development. And it just seems like always, 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 we do the wrong thing instead of the right thing. And then we always justify it. Like right now, there's a problem with what to do with teenagers who have nothing to do. So they do what teenagers do. They rock and roll and party. And they rock and roll and party downtown and north. Avenue Beach, and they upset anybody, any adult, any old person. If I were walking down the street, I'd be upset. God, these kids today. Even though I was doing the same thing back in the day, as everybody else was, pretty much. So what do we do about that? Lock them up. <laughs> Curfew. 
Mm, yeah, but what about the, all the inequities and the, our lack of funding social programs? Yeah, that's a long-term solution. We need a short-term solution. Lock them up. Always the short-term solutions. Anyway, this all came flooding back to me when I had a conversation with Tom Brune, who will probably be a guest on the show uh, once he completes his article and gets it out, and we'll take a deep dive uh, into Chicago's past. Uh, no deep dives today into Chicago's past. We're going to be talking national politics. Miles Conflassen is joining me from In These Times, editor, writer, extraordinaire. And I always like to point out, proud graduate of Whitney Young High School. And no, Miles was not one of the kids rampaging uh, through the park uh, last week, scaring uh, all the adults. He was doing that back in 2003, I say, but not in 2022. Uh, anyways, welcome back, Miles. Oh, thank you very much, Ben. Very good. Glad to be here. Yeah, there you are. And uh, for a while, I don't think your mic was working, but it's working fine now. So, Miles, really briefly, uh, were you a kid back in the day who would go hang out at North Avenue uh, Beach and uh, walk through the, the Gold Coast? And Well, there was no Millennium Park yet. Or was there? No, there was not. They were building it, so you couldn't hang out at the Bean. Uh, were you that kind of kid? Well, I was uh, lucky enough to benefit from a program that uh, you're probably familiar with, started by Maggie Daly, the Gallery 37 uh, program that then became After School Matters, um, and that really was uh, helpful and you know giving me something to do during the summer. And we actually got paid through the city. I was uh, making art in the tents downtown on the old Block Thirty Seven. Um, so that's how I was able to spend my time because the city was investing resources in providing um, you know work opportunities to. Uh, urban youth. I mean, that was where that whole program was directed. Since then, it's changed quite a bit. I mean, we still have after school matters, but um, but yeah, you would have found me uh, walking around State Street or you know Michigan Avenue back then. But then again, as you know, I'm uh, grew up in Beverly, so a lot of my time was spent cruising around the Western Avenue and 103rd Street. So not as close to North Avenue Beach to take advantage of all that. No, he went, oh, I got it wrong. He was hanging around that mall on 95th and Western, causing trouble. <laughs> the 95th and Western Mall, that's where all the kids from Beverly hung out. All right. Evergreen, Park, Evergreen Plaza. Evergreen Plaza. Ever, Evergreen Plaza, yes, indeed. Uh, and I very much remember Block 37. I could go on and on, but I'm going to restrain myself and uh, focus on the uh, issues of today and not talk about uh, failed TIF deals uh, from the 1980s and, and 90s. Uh, all right. Um, Let's talk about the election results. Uh, when I was uh, have, chatting with Miles' sister in the phone, I was filled with gloom and doom uh, in the aftermath of the election results. Uh, in part, I'm really heavily concentrating on Philadelphia, thinking about uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania state of, uh, and um, the fact that a, a super MAGA man was elected by uh, the Republican voters uh, to be their nominee. The curious strategy of Democrats uh, to encourage that, uh, with the idea being that the electorate uh, would be so repulsed by MAGA uh, that they would vote Democrat. And so the state, the Democrats would take the state. Josh Shapiro is their nominee. So that's sort of the strategy that Democrats were following. I can understand, uh, in principle, Miles, the, the theory behind it. I truly do understand the theory behind it. But yet it was filling me with dread uh, that somebody so extreme would be chosen by so many voters uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, I found it scary. And um, it just led, made me realize uh, that the Trump movement is far deeper than any of us thought back in 2016 when Donald Trump was first nominated. So why don't you just talk in general terms about what went down in Pennsylvania uh, in the primary? Go ahead. There's a lot of takeaways from uh, what happened last night. I think we can't be overstated how um, much of a shift the Republican Party has taken to embracing the big lie um, and a refusal to accept the fact that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election as not just part of their platform or policy, you know, tableau, but actually a core organizing principle. And I think that's what the success of Doug Mastriano really illustrates. It's that they're turning a, a false belief that, you know, Donald Trump had the election stolen from him into the way in which they organize their politics um, and that the party leaders have really accepted that. I mean, that's D Doug Mastriano is not just one of these uh, run of the mill Republicans who then jumped on the 
stop the steal uh, train. He actually was, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th. He attended the um, rally and got past police barricades during the insurrection. So he, you know, when Democrats claim, you know, this is, we have insurrectionists at the gates, you know, we're moving towards fascism. Doug Mastriano is a perfect example of that uh, type of uh, individual. And he is, uh, you know, committed to using his position if he does become the governor of Pennsylvania to, um, you know, support those efforts to make sure that Republicans can't lose despite whatever vote totals may show. And that's the reason that is so dangerous is because obviously Pennsylvania is a swing state. Um, so just, you know, judging by our national political temperature right now, Republicans are in a good position to pick up, um, to, to, to win the governor's seat, um, during that election. And, I mean, because look at the political climate right now. You know, people are very upset and worried about inflation. Gas prices are like $5 at the pump. I think a lot of that is, um, you know, has to do with oil company profiteering more than it has to do with like macroeconomic policy, something we've talked about on the show. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, that will influence how people vote despite whatever Doug Mastriano has, you know, on his you know, campaign platform, people are just going to look at D versus R in a lot of uh, cases. And the the reason that's so dangerous to drill it down on it a little bit is that uh, in Pennsylvania, the Secretary of State is appointed by the governor. And, you know, the Secretary of State is the one who will confirm the election results. And then that certificate needs to be signed by the governor. Um, and that's how they choose the electors. And Mastriano has em embraced that whole Huntsman, Eastman strategy of, uh, you know, having an alternative set of electors um, in order to nullify previous Democratic election results. So basically, this is just setting up a constitutional crisis. You know, if Mastriano is victorious over Shapiro, um, we very well could see a case where you know, the, the vote in Pennsylvania goes towards the Democratic nominee, whether that's Joe Biden or somebody else. Um, and, you know, Trump is most likely the Republican nominee for 2024. But if it's not him, it'll certainly be somebody in Trump's mold. Um, and Mastriano would be in a position to, you know, hand the election of a swing state, one of the most important swing states in the country to uh, to the Republicans. So that's, I mean, I understand your concern. I try not to be too alarmist about these kind of like dem democracy crisis questions. I mean, you hear that all the time on cable news. Um, but this really is, I think, a clear example where now we have people in positions of political power who are, or at least on the verge of it, who are committed to overturning um, democratic election results. And that has to alarm and um, really motivate people uh, across the country who believe in, you know, a democratic system to to get engaged. And I, I do think you're right and that, that Democrats are betting on that. And that's kind of their um, strategy in this case is say, look, we'll help to get the most extreme guy on the right uh, nominated so that our guy, Shapiro, who, you know, he's done some great things. Shapiro's like, we've led up the investigation of the Catholic Church and oil companies and things like that. He's more of a, you know, moderate candidate in some ways, but he, you know, could be appealing. But the danger is you just, you know, help to lift up this person who is, uh, stands in opposition to the very idea of democratic governance. And we did, you know, we saw this game play out before with Trump. I mean, Democrats talked openly during the 2016 primary about like how the Trump would be, you know, the greatest gift the Republicans could give Democrats by nominating him because, and, you know, Democrats did conspire within Republican primaries to try to help Trump because they thought he would be a much easier candidate to beat in the fall. And what happened? You know, Trump won. And we're dealing with the consequences of that today. So I think it is a dangerous proposition. There are cases, you know, you could see where that did work. Remember Todd Akin, there's other, you know, with Claire McCaskill, there's other cases where Democrats, you know, successfully got extreme Republicans uh, or helped get them uh, into primary wins and then were able to win in the general election. But if that plan backfires, this is, you know, the, the whole game is at stake. So, um 
I, I, I think there's plenty of reason for worry. There's plenty of other results, you know, that are more positive we could focus on as well. But I think that particular one, as it pertains to the Pennsylvania governor's race, uh, should be pretty shocking. And I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more um, national attention. I mean, you can see it in, you know, cable news coverage and places like that. But I don't think most people around the country realize how much of an impact this one race uh, can have on our national politics. Yeah, well, to that point, there's a headline on the front page of the New York Times that says, in primaries, GOP voters reward a lie, and the lie they're uh, alluding to. There's many lies uh, <laughs> that uh, have been that have rewarded the GOP, starting with uh, Obama being born in uh, Kenya as opposed to Hawaii, if you want to go back just in this latest incarnation. Uh, but the lie they're talking about is that uh, somehow or other Donald Trump... Uh, actually won an election he lost and it was stolen from him uh and that has become as you said a uh, organizing uh, tool uh i i i wonder about this and i'd love to get your thoughts on this uh as to uh how much america as a whole cares about the loss of this just democracy so you laid it out uh, the re Republicans are poised in many states to uh, nominate candidates who are dedicated to the notion that if Donald Trump loses, that's okay. They'll cook up some excuse uh, to justify replacing the electors who are committed to Biden or whoever the Democratic candidate is with electors who are committed to Trump. So the votes effectively are uh, eradicated. And They've been clear in state after state that they're going to claim fraud in areas where there's heavy concentrations of black voters because it's like this weird twisted thing in the, in the minds of white people, Miles, that, yes, there's fraud there. You know what I'm saying? They just believe it. Uh, and they don't care because it's not their votes getting thrown out. Uh, and so they've shown what they're going to do they tried to do in 2020 they're as you said it looks like they're geared up to do it two years ahead of time in 2024 um so what's your sense of how that plays with the general electorate do you think um most Americans will be outraged? Do you think they'll be indifferent? Do you think they'll go, oh, everybody does it? Uh, do you think they'll just say, well, what about my gas prices? Uh, in other words, can this be a defining issue in the upcoming election? For I Democrats? certainly think that Democrats are going to try to cast it that way. Um, the issue is that you know, these, a lot of these are not going to be national offices. They're going to be, you know, governorships. I mean, we're already seeing Trump um, back candidates or at least Trump light. I mean, that's the thing is that Trump, even if Trump's primary endorsements don't work out, all the rest of the field tends to fall in line. And certainly they have on this question of stop the steal. And so if you look at, at the governor's races in Michigan, um, in Wisconsin and in, in, obviously in Pennsylvania and a number of other swing states, the Republican nominees are going to be, um, you know, committed to overturning elections if they don't reflect what, you know, Republican uh, leaders want to see. And that's, you know, more Republicans getting elected. I mean, they're not going to come out and say that, but they are certainly going to give all the whistles that they are already giving, saying all the things you said about, you know, voter fraud and specifically distrust of um, vote totals in urban communities, quote unquote, you know, main, mainly meaning um, communities of color. And that is I think, you know, if nationally, I think that that is alarming and Democrats will certainly try to um, play off of that in their fundraising and all of the uh, campaign rhetoric. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the voters in those states. And, you know, primaries are tend to be smaller vote totals anyway. And so it's easier for these radical extremist nominees to get in there, especially with the backing of the former president. And then once they have that R next to their name on the ballot, 
it's, you know, you're fighting over these very small margins of people to win over. And in a, uh, an environment where the current president, Joe Biden, is incredibly unpopular and um, a lot of, you know, Americans clearly have a negative view of the direction of the country and specifically of the economy. Um, meanwhile, the pandemic continues to um, spread essentially unabated, that's going to create a very difficult environment for Democrats to be able to peel over those um, uh, swing voters in these in these swing states like uh, Michigan and uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So that's where the real challenge is. is I, I do think that most Americans probably are alarmed by the concept of um, the, you know, st- stopping the steal of trying to, you know, operationalize the big lie, essentially. But uh, unfortunately, that's, you know, it's just because a majority of Americans are appalled by something doesn't mean it can't win at the ballot. And it's going to be on the Democratic Party, I think, to, you know, offer a compelling alternative to to that vision and certainly an alternative to where the country is right now, because you can't just run on the Republicans are scary. I mean, I do think that has to be part of the message because they literally are scary and want to, you know, undo our democracy. But this is a historical issue. I mean, just the way that you framed it about, you know, not believing that votes in, you know, black communities or communities of color are as worthwhile or as, you know, hold as much value as votes by white people. That's like from, you know, Jim Crow era and even before, like foundations of American democracy were based on ideas of, you know, poll taxes and, you know, poll tests and ways in which we can, I mean, the whole reason we have a Voting Rights Act is in the first place, even though it's being shredded, was because there were efforts to undermine um, the abilities of uh, black citizens and, you know, just people of color to uh, engage in the franchise in the first place. And so, therefore, I mean, I, I think that it's of a long trend in American history. It's a, this rearing its head in a very, you know, terrifying way, but it's not completely new to the American political ecosystem that we now have um, you know, candidates that are openly running against the idea of having a fully enfranchised population be engaged in determining not just who our leaders are, but how we arrange um, politics in our country. Yeah, it is frightening. And I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, and I, I, it almost makes me nostalgic uh, listening to you talk to the days of 2019. I talk about this a lot, actually. I am kind of nostalgic to the 2019 uh, Democratic debates, days of the debates, where Democrats were on stage more or less arguing uh, how far to the left the Democratic Party should go and pushing things like, I don't know, forgiving student uh, debt, loan debt, you know, or had Medicare for all. Uh, and, you know, of course, I'm on the Bernie side of these arguments. Um, and... and, and uh, but it was like it was like a legitimate legitimate debate, <clears throat> and the issue was what's the best way to go forward for the Democratic Party. Uh, we had not seen on full display uh, the anti-democratic, I would call it fascistic uh, leanings of the Republican Party, and that's really a euphemism. I mean, they just went out there. Donald Trump calling election officials in Georgia, saying to throw away votes. You know, calling Michigan election officials in Michigan, telling them to throw away votes. He's not been prosecuted for either offense. Uh, and and then, of course, <clears throat> giving uh, the speech on January 6th and then dispatching people to Capitol. They overtook the Capitol. This, and this dude was in the Capitol. Did he make it to the Capitol, uh, Miles? I can't recall. They showed him crossing the barricade. I'm not sure if he made it inside the the building, but uh, he He says he didn't break any laws, but there are, yeah, there is footage of him certainly beyond the police barricades. Although, as we know, (laughs) plenty of people did that and never got prosecuted. So, you know, who, I I don't know, I guess it's a little bit uh, wishy-washy where the line is there. Yeah, uh, he didn't break any laws. That's so, uh, and that's our new, I didn't break any laws. Uh, But um, interesting uh, from a law and order candidate. Uh, so I, I, uh, I do believe absolutely that, uh, you know, visions matter, ideology matters, programs and promises matter, and just what you tend to do with government matters, getting more people, uh, involved, uh, in the process. Uh, so yes, I'm with you hundred percent on that. Uh, but, uh, it's just like, that's almost secondary 
when I think it won't matter if MAGA seizes control of the voting apparatus and uh, a victory for Bernie Sanders-like ideals is just snatched away by cheating, you know? And then MAGA says, well, we did this because you were cheating, which is like a weird form of projection and gaslighting. And so I'm, um, I'm really hoping uh, that uh, the rest of the country cares about this as much as like people like you and me, uh, because I do believe this is a, a stand. I'm, yeah. There's also this question of the um, Pennsylvania uh, Senate race, which is still undecided. But um, this is where Donald Trump uh, definitely jumped into the fray and backing his celebrity buddy, Dr. Oz, um, in, a, in a race against a more moderate, uh, if you can even call him that, he's also a stop the steal guy, but David Montgomery. Uh, the Senate, you wouldn't have quite as much control over the outcome of an election, so it's not as much of a leverage point for them anyway. But um, but Trump, it's such a curious case because that race is currently still in a dead heat. I think it's like 30.1% for Montgomery to 30.3% for Oz. Uh, so it's likely going to go to a recount and probably just come down to a few hundred votes. Um, but Montgomery is gaining and Montgomery is the person Trump really didn't want. You know, he wanted his buddy, Dr. Oz, to get in there and went all the way for him. Now, you know, he's starting to, uh, Montgomery is starting to gain in these late vote totals, um, inch by inch. And what uh, Trump is saying is he, uh, you know, came out and said that Dr. Oz should just declare victory and just, you know, call it over. And that, to me, you know, indicates that Trump probably thinks that Oz will lose, you know, ultimately in the vote count, or at least it'll be challengeable. And so he's saying, just get ahead of that by just declaring victory early. And you remember, that's what Trump did in 2020. He said, I frankly did win, you know, on the night of the election, even though he was um, shown losing. So this is a Republican primary where Trump is already, you know, getting involved and saying that his candidates should just, you know, forget about whatever the vote totals say and um, just embrace the Trump uh, candidate. And what will that mean in the fall? You know, if David Montgomery is deemed the nominee for the Republican in the Senate, are Trump's people still going to get behind Montgomery after he says basically he's stealing the election from Oz? I think that that creates a different set of incentives. And it's a curious case where, you know, we're seeing this Democratic crisis play out across the board. You know, we think about it when it just comes to that 2020 election. But there have been many of these cases now where uh, MAGA uh, folks have deemed races to be, um, you know, un clear or what have you, just because there's, you know, fishy business going on with mail-in voting when, you know, Trump mailed in his vote, right, from, uh, from Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all, there, there's, there's hypocrisy at play, but it's also just, you know, we're dealing in pretty untested waters with all of this stuff. And um, yeah, and that, that Pennsylvania Senate race, I think is a good example of what that looks like uh, in practice. Yeah, I was just going to go there, and uh, oh my God, so much to just riff on what you said. First of all, uh, McCormick is quote-unquote moderate in only, in, in relation to uh, Oz, only in that Trump didn't endorse him. So you, I don't think you could, uh, to, to, I don't think you could find a dime's worth of difference, to quote uh, George Wallace. <laughs> don't know where that came from. Um, uh, between the two of them on anything uh, resembling an issue and their deference to Donald Trump, uh, even if Donald Trump has been trashing McCormick. That's the really twisted thing about the Republican Party right now. The, the Trump trashes these guys, and then they still uh, pledge their loyalty and fealty to him because they know that a significant chunk of their party is blindly loyal to Donald Trump. Another reason to be afraid, uh, Miles, so blindly loyal to such a grifter. But uh, yeah, uh, listen, the inconsistent, I can't take anything the Republicans say when it comes to elections 
uh, seriously because they just vary what they say according to their needs. So if you recall, in Arizona, they were chanting during the presidential, count every vote, count every vote, because they were hoping that Trump would come from behind uh, to defeat Joe Biden as mail-in counts, ballots were counted. Uh, and in other states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, stop the count, stop the count. So they just say whatever they have to say in order to get Donald Trump to quote unquote win an election that he lost. They have no credibility whatsoever uh, on any issue, but in particularly uh, on this one. And yes, if the roles were reversed and uh, McCormick was the early leader and Oz was hoping for the mail-in ballots to put him over the top, they would be out there count every vote every vote counts you know it miles and um that's why you know that's where i'm so disappointed in the electorate uh and this is where i need your help uh, to have a little more hope and faith in them because it seems like they just buy whatever republicans say at any given moment even if it contradicts what they said the day before how can you deal with people who are just so i don't even know if gullible is the right word miles you know, they're just ideologues. They're like marching in order, like lemmings going off a cliff. That's, I think, when, I, when I'm most bleak and gloomy is when you re I realize there's nothing of, like, you can't give someone evidence of stuff and then have them change their mind. They're always going to believe what they uh, just came in believing or wanting to believe. Please talk me off this ledge, Miles. I think there's many uh, ways in which people are influenced by the you know news ecosystem that they live in, the echo chambers that we all create for ourselves through not only our social media feeds, but also just you know our our friend groups and our you know social networks, uh, personal social networks, not um, just online ones, and that you know creates kind of. Uh, reinforcing effect for prior beliefs, but also can, you know, build upon uh, false information if that's put out into the air. I mean, we see this all the time. It's like, it's not a lot of the, I, I, I talk about this with climate change sometimes. I mean, people often say, oh, well, people just don't know, you know, what's going on with climate. They don't understand the science and that's why people don't care about it. Or that's why they don't believe that um, fossil fuel companies are responsible for, um, for global warming. But it's actually, if you look at it, you know, climate uh, denialism is highest in some of the most educated parts of the Republican Party. It's not a question of people not having access to information. It's that, you know, worldviews are built upon uh, things outside of just basic facts. They're built upon stories and stories that we tell ourselves about the way that the world works and who's responsible and ultimately you know, what should be our primary motivating factors in life. And I think, unfortunately, there is, there's, there's been, you know, decades upon decades of um, a constant banging of, uh, of a neoliberal world order, right, that uh, says that profit generation and, you know, maximize, ma maximizing your own personal um, assets and income and uh, stature in society is the most important thing in the world. And that has had such an anti-solidaristic impact. I mean, there's a report on this that recently came out from researchers that did a long study looking at data over many decades from like 160 countries um, and how when neoliberal policies such as like those in, under Thatcher and um, in the UK and um, and Reagan and other presidents in, in the U.S., how that impacted people's views on inequality. And it's made, uh, you know, humans way more accepting of the idea that inequality is a fundamental part of human nature. Um, whereas that wasn't as much of the case before. And I think that that goes to show we often think that, you know, uh, the, the, the type of systems we create in the world, whether they're economic or political, are reflections of our own human nature. And I think it often can work the other way, whereas, you know, we're impacted by broad meta narratives around us. Um, I'm not trying to take agency away from all people, but I do think that, you know, when you're, you live in a world where like Sinclair Media owns all the local networks and they're constantly um, 
pushing forward ideas that, you know, immigrants are to blame for all the problems in our society, that uh, climate change is a racket to help, you know, boost the environmental uh, uh, renewable energy sector that's all propped up to benefit, you know, Democratic Party globalists or something, that's going to have an impact on the way people think about things. And unfortunately, I think it has to do with kind of our frayed social fabric and also the role of, um, of mass media. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of with something we've talked about, which is this question of uh, inflation and the, the, the really incredible gap between where the economy is under Joe Biden, you know, the incredibly low unemployment rates, the growth in wages, um, the general, like, you know, the, the actual lessening of the deficit under under Biden, which he's starting to tout, but, you know, it's one of the factors that, you know, Americans say they care about all the time. Um, well, in many ways, the economy is doing great, especially compared to a year or two ago, um, where it was. And yet you see in all of these polls, people saying that, you know, inflation is their number one issue, that the economy is on the wrong track, that the country is on the wrong track. And so, you know, how do we explain that? I think it does. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that, but I think it does have to do with how people are getting their information right now. I don't think these things are insurmountable because, you know, to, to get to the talking off of a ledge <laughs> portion of this, I think there's uh, ways in which you know, we we have existed under this paradigm that, you know, we're just fighting over scraps. We are living under, you know, austerity politics. Democrats are just offering like a slimmed down version of what Republicans often are. And we don't have to live under that paradigm. We can have candidates for political office that break out of that, you know, that offer actual, you know, help for working people that, you know, give people a sense that there's going to be a different way of um, organizing our social and economic lives that don't involve struggling every day to pay for, you know, your health care and uh, education um, and rising housing costs and all the other elements. Because we shouldn't discount the fact it still is really hard to be a poor working person in America. And it's very easy to see um, neither political party as really working for you. And you see that reflected in the fact Republicans are, you know, have been doing quite well without even having, the Republican Party didn't put out a platform in 2020. You know, talk about like arguing over uh, policy. The Democrats do talk a lot about policy, but then what do we have? We have a stalled, you know, build back better plan that didn't even go anywhere. And it just seems again like Democrats aren't doing anything Whereas Republicans are focusing way more on, you know, cultural and social issues and this idea of, like, you know, there being a crisis of voting and um, fake voters and all of this. They're, like, they're, they're making the narrative. And I think Democrats or, you know, people on the left just need to do a better job of making a new narrative and offering something different. And if you look at some of the election results from Tuesday night, you'll see examples where that worked. And, um, you know, the prime one I would point to is Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. She was a former um, state representative who ran for Congress. And she actually ran against this union-busting lawyer who was running in the Democratic primary named Steve Irwin. Um, she faced down millions of dollars, up to $3 million in attack ads sponsored by right-wing um, forces, including a lot of pro-Israel groups that were uh, funneling money into this race. And she ran on, you know, um, the multiracial working class rising up to demand their rights and in embracing programs like Medicare for All, like a Green New Deal, um, and uh, prison reform, all kinds of things. And she looks to have won against this massive uh, dark money campaign against her. And I think that's got to be the future. I mean, you see, it's not a uh, uh, shock that we're having more um, outspoken candidates like uh, those of the squad, like AOC and Ilhan Omar, um, and now Summer Lee, see success at the same time we're seeing this authoritarian lurch on the right. We're seeing uh, more candidates that are embracing like a social democratic vision having success within the, uh, the Democratic side. So I would just say that that's where the getting out of this uh, hole we're stuck in lies. And that's not the only example. In Oregon, this guy Kurt Schrader lost. Kurt Schrader was known as like the Joe Manchin of the House. He was uh, 
um, right-wing Democrat, who was actually the one that helped to kill a lot of the pharmaceutical drug pricing reform that had been moving through Congress. He almost single-handedly killed that. And yet he got the endorsements of all the Democratic establishment, including Joe Biden. <laughs> the president endorsed the guy who was uh, in, you know, responsible for effectively killing his agenda in Congress, just because that's like the inertia of incumbency within the Democratic establishment. But even with all that support, he still lost to a left-wing primary challenge uh, on Tuesday night. So I think there is some hope. Obviously, that's not like, you know, we're not electing Bernie Sanders to be president right now. We're not going to see, a, you know, an immediate progressive revival in the U.S. Um, but I do think that focusing especially on um, local electoral races and organizing within communities, focusing especially on building a resurgent labor uh, movement where we're seeing green shoots pop up every day. That's Those are some of the kind of ways to um, get out of it. So we're not just focused on the bleakness because that's, you know, that that's a path to um, just not not going anywhere, right? That's a that's a path to nowhere. We need to, um, I think, as people that believe in a uh, future where we actually embrace democratic rights and make life better for working people, we need to have our eyes on the prize uh, as well. The same way these uh, right wingers have successfully uh, done it over the past uh, few years and decades. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'm. So to that point of me not being bleak, I'm just not going to be bleak. I'm going to finish out this conversation by not being bleak and gloomy. So I will not point out that as soon as Kurt Schrader had lost, Dave Wasserman uh, turned that district from leaning Democrat to toss-up. I'm not going to concentrate on the bleak and the gloomy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Miles. Uh, but uh, I hear what you're saying. The Democrats have to stand for something. I say this all the time, particularly on the local level. Uh, we are a very democratic city, the city of Chicago, so we can pretty much do whatever we want uh, in the city of Chicago without having to worry about uh, Republican opposition, although Chicago will be used by the Republican Party uh, to conjure up the worst fears uh, people in this country have about uh, cities. Uh, so, all right, let's talk about some more. Let's stay, keep it positive. Uh, your thoughts on uh, Fetterman winning, uh, going back to Pennsylvania, uh, in the uh, Democratic primary uh, for a Senate. Uh, and uh, he had some medical issues right before. I don't know if you follow this that closely, uh, Miles. Uh, before what? But bad timing. Uh, but he's apparently okay and uh, geared up to go. Uh, and the Republicans, he has a bit of an advantage right now because the two Republican uh, leading vote getters, it's not clear who will emerge from this vote count. And they're so busy fighting each other that they've momentarily forgotten to fight him, which is always an advantage to one party or another. Uh, so you must be optimistic about that. Am I correct? Sure. I do think that uh, there's probably no doubt that John Fetterman was the best candidate that the Democrats had to run for this seat. Um, certainly better than Connor Lamb, who was effectively the, you know, an, at least when the, the race started, he was like the de facto establishment choice. You had all these talking heads going on um, the news saying that he was the future of the Democratic Party. He's a D Joe Biden Democrat. Um, Connor Lamb would want a, a House seat. Uh, in Pennsylvania is running as kind of a blue dog, like moderate uh, Democrat guy. Well, he got trounced by John Fetterman, who, as you said, uh, won the election from his hospital bed. He was, you know, getting a pacemaker installed the day of the election, and he won every county in the whole state. So, yeah, the uh, traditional blue dog Democrat, Rahm Emanuel style uh, dude got uh, got his butt kicked, whereas um, Fetterman is uh, is ascendant. And, you know, there's not... Fetterman does exist in a little bit more of an ideologically um, unclear state in that he's not... Um, uh, state of being in that he's not exactly left-wing on every issue. You know, there's some things like immigration and even, like, energy and um, some foreign policy stuff where he's not a traditional kind of Bernie crap. But that said, he focused his campaign pretty um, solely on 
look, we're going to raise the minimum wage. We're going to um, expand union rights. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, fight for universal health care. He has one ad. I would just say this to any person that's running for trying to run in the Democratic primary. He had an ad that I encourage everybody to watch. It's 30 seconds of him basically walking around in Old Steel Town. You know, he's from Braddock, uh, Pennsylvania. And he's just walking around saying health care should be a human right and just talking to workers and, you know, having them say, I, be, I, I believe in health care, you know, access universally. And that's it. That's the whole ad is just saying, look, health care is a right that everybody should have. It's not a privilege. That's basically what Bernie Sanders has been saying for 40 years. And yet, you know, we get all this wishy-washy Pete Buttigieg, Medicare for all who want it kind of stuff. And uh, I don't think that that flies. I think we need to focus on, you know, having clear stances when it comes to policy and morals. And I would say what, what, what's been successful about Fetterman is he, like, walks the walk. You know, he looks like a guy from Steeltown, Pennsylvania, because he is one. Uh, it's not uh, artifice. And he's got some personality. It's almost uh, Trumpian, not in, you know, his politics, but in affect, in terms of how he's approaching um, the uh, position. You know, I think that this is a lesson that Democrats really do need to take, is that, um, as I said, the Republicans have had so much success without having a platform, without really having an ideological or policy-driven center. That used to, I mean, it's obviously they're still you know, for a conservative social order and, you know, uh, em embracing corporate power, all of those things. But they're not running on those things. They're running on, you know, affect. They're running on kind of like personality and owning the libs and, you know, fighting the evil socialists and all this stuff. And they're having success just because I think that that's, you know, reflective of people feeling upset at the system and wanting somebody who will fight for them. And I think Fetterman was able to kind of clearly occupy that position because he was both, a, um, you know, authentic person and because he made his stances very clear about what, uh, you know, he wanted, why he wanted to see a more uh, just society for working people in particular. And I think that's a lesson that um, Democrats really should take from what happened in this election. And they got to be less boring because I too often, you know, you see a Democrat and they just seem like, you know, a vanilla popsicle or something. They're not really offering you much to, you know, get you excited about going to the polls and they'll talk about all the policy stuff. But if you don't see those policies translate into changes in your life, for one, which rarely happens under, you know, because we have this such divided government um, and you don't give people, you know, something kind of uh, exciting to uh, to get riled up about and get out to the polls, I just don't see how you're going to combat this ascendant uh, Trumpist right wing. And I don't know if Fetterman will win um, his election because of, the, as I said, the political map does not look great uh, in considering how unpopular Joe Biden is right now for a Democrat to win that race, regardless of whether he's up against Oz or Montgomery, but I do think he's the best chance um, that they'll have to pick up that Senate seat. And so, um, yeah, that I, I think I think lessons abound from uh, from the Fetterman race. All right, and uh, we'll close. Uh, that's a nice little piece of uh, optimism to close on. I'm I'm inching away from the ledge. Thank you, Miles. Uh, and uh, we'll close with a little local. Get your thoughts on this. Pretty much everybody comes on the show this week. Uh, there's always a question, you know, like uh, local news. Uh, if you live in Chicago, and even if you're, uh, most of your uh, uh, attention is focused on national issues, uh, and that has to do with uh, the curfew uh, proposal by Lord Life uh, to impose a curfew for all teenagers wandering through Millennium Park. Uh, and obviously it's a reaction. I, I talked about this at the outset of the show, uh, a reaction to crime uh, in the city of Chicago. And uh, so... Your general thoughts, uh, Miles, I've had many conversations in the show with many people and will continue to do them about uh, like what, how, to, uh, how the Democrats, what kind of proposals the Democrats should put out about fighting crime, and criminal justice, and all that stuff. So your general thoughts on Mayor Lori Lightfoot's imposition of a curfew uh, for teenagers in Millennium Park. Well, I think it's more criminalization of youth. 
in our city. And it's only going to feed into this idea that, you know, the city is not for them. And um, the only reason it's being floated is because kids don't vote, you know, so it's not a, uh, you know, electoral constituency that the mayor or even any alderman really need to worry about. But that doesn't mean that we should not care about, you know, the lives of young people in this city. Um, I think there's structural issues behind a lot of the violence we're seeing and even some of the, you know, just petty crime um, that is the impulse behind uh, setting these curfews. It's, but it's similar to when, you know, the mayor raised the bridges during the protest downtown. Um, it's like punishing um, the very people that are speaking out against injustice. In this case, I mean, the fact that there is violence that, uh, that, that occurred is tragic downtown. There's violence that occurs within communities across Chicago every day. And that this will only further segregate that violence. I think that's the issue that we have in Chicago is that there's communities where, you know, there's shootings every day. And there's communities where that uh, is a rarity. And as soon as it starts to bleed over into the wealthier areas, into the whiter areas in the city, it's suddenly a crisis. And the way of dealing with that crisis is just through further criminalization and um, stepping up uh, security or surveillance or what have you. Never is the solution investing in these communities, providing the kind of supports like I started the show talking about Gallery 37 and how that was you know so helpful for me and people I knew around the, uh, the, the city in the early 2000s and helping to give kids a, a, a place to go and you know provide them some, uh, some money in their pockets. Um, instead we've just had disinvestment in our in, in these communities, especially on the south and west sides for decades. And we're continuing to see the tragic results of that without there being, you know, other alternatives on offer. And I think what will happen if we continue to just, you know, solve these problems by trying to sweep them away and put them back into the communities that are not always the ones that the people that hold power in our city um, either live in or see every day. Um, it's just going to further segregate um, how our people's lived experiences in Chicago are. It's going to lead to more of an exodus from the city, from um, especially uh, black communities, but communities of color across the city. And that's going to leave us in a, uh, as, a, as a far less vibrant and rich, culturally rich and um, an exciting place to be uh, in, in the world. And that's Chicago's strength is its um, diversity. It always has been. And the more we create, you know, a, a Lincoln Yards and Valleys casino glass tower type of uh, city and keeping all of the, you know, people from the south and west sides of the city trapped in their, you know, communities, we're not going to, you know, build on the strength of what makes uh, Chicago such uh, an incredible place to to live and to to, to be so uh, yeah that's that that's my general feeling I also think that uh, that having it go to the city council now is going to really complicate things because I think Lori thought she could do it by fiat and now there's going to be some like democratic oversight and I know a number of aldermen that have already spoken out forcefully against uh, this curfew so I don't even know if it's going to um, fly now that it has to face uh, face the city council. Uh, when you said Democrat, you meant uh, a small D Democrat, uh, demo as in democracy, as in what uh, Donald Trump and MAGA are uh, trying to obliterate uh, right now. Uh, so tying all the themes of the show together. And to that point, I want to tell you, Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez will be on the show next week, as will uh, JT. A lot of people accuse me, Ben, JT's your favorite alderman, alderwoman Jeanette Taylor of the 20th Ward. I don't have absolute favorites, but uh, everybody knows I love Jeanette Taylor. Um, that was a hell of a riff, and I'll just close by saying this in regard uh, to uh, Gallery 37 uh, and Block 37, is that what it was called back in the day? My biggest problem with Block 37, uh, Gallery 37, is that there weren't 100 of them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there was only one. And uh, I would have liked to have seen one. That model replicated throughout the city, uh, recruiting in schools, for kids who show any kind of talent in art or drama 
uh, or writing. So much talent in the city of Chicago that goes undeveloped and unharnessed and unchanneled. And even if you don't become a professional painter or artist or dancer or musician, it just kind of gets you in a track and you learn other skills. Like there's a lot of kids I know who want to be great basketball players, uh, Miles. And um, the reality is that the jobs in basketball are more, awfully off, more often off the court in the marketing department or, you know, in the, in the uh, film uh, division of an entity. And uh, you know what I'm saying? And so you could prepare for that future if you want to be in basketball. So I'm with you 100%. I haven't completely gone gloom and doom, it, even if it seems that every moment in our history as a city of Chicago, and I'm going to close where I began, we make the wrong decision. You know what I'm saying, Miles? We just make the wrong decision. So I'll really be watching with great fascination the debate that the city council has uh, on the issue of the curfew and see how the votes line up and compare them to the votes on, like, the casino. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other topic for another time. Miles, before I let you go, I think, I can't believe this, just like today is dress-up-alike day in the Ben because You can't see this, ladies and gentlemen. I believe Miles and I are each wearing a Chicago Bulls T-shirt today. Is that correct? Do I have you right? Is that a Chicago? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what nerds? <laughs> the, the, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he comes on this show. I love him dearly. He comes on as uh, a very knowledgeable student of politics, uh, economics, social issues, Bernie Sanders, what have you. But this guy's the biggest Bulls fan in the world. He tried to, unlike me, who, who has no shame, I just show it open, conceals it a little more. But Miles, <laughs> I see you wearing a Bulls shirt today. I'm like, God bless you, man. To that point, are you like me? We're going to close with the Bulls. Are you like me hoping that the Bulls draft Kofi, Kofi Cockburn from Illinois with their pick? He, I just read an article that says he's fallen in the draft. This guy is like seven feet, really strong center, with like a force in the middle that the Bulls have never had since Artis Gilmore. Uh, I don't even think Bill Cartwright was that kind of force in the in the middle. So are, do you think the Bulls should draft him, or are you going to say, Ben, we need a sh he doesn't shoot well enough? Your thoughts? If the Bulls have any chance to get Coburn, they better take it. Not only is he, you know, an incredibly dominant player, he's the only, he's the only guy that the Bulls could get that could, you know, stop Embiid or Giannis or any of these other big guys um, that are going to come at them in the East. But also he played with Io, who just got, Io DeSumo, who just got voted, you know, second team uh, all-rookie, uh, I think today or yesterday. And, uh, they, yeah, they were teammates together at uh, Illinois. They were both fighting Illini. So, of course, they should uh, draft him if he's available. I truly doubt he's still going to be on the board by the time the Bulls get a pick. But if there's even any thought of that, I'm all on board. I am a little bit uh, troubled because I just listened to an uh, interview with LeVar Ball uh, on the Capman show. And LeVar was saying, he, he did say that he thinks Lonzo, you know, the Bulls starting point guard, uh, will be healthy by the beginning of next season um, and won't need surgery, which I you know, truly hope is true because he you know, was such an important part of their offense and defense this past season. But he also predicted, uh, LeVar did, that uh, Zach Levine is going to sign elsewhere. Uh, he thinks he's, gonna, he's going to the Lakers. So now I don't know what to think because if the, you know, the Bulls don't bring back that same core, who knows who they're going to draft. Um, but I will say so far... Um, we had an exciting Bulls season. We got DeMar DeRozan. I trust in AK, uh, you know, uh, Arturis, and uh, the Bulls' current front office leadership to build the best team possible. And uh, I think that definitely will mean drafting Coburn if he's available, but it'll also mean making the right decision when it comes to figuring out the Zach Levine uh, situation as well. So, uh, I'm excited. I mean, you brought up uh, uh, Suns Warriors earlier. I could talk about the current uh, Western Conference or Eastern Conference finals all day, but uh, I'm excited for the Bulls to finally, in the future, get to those later stage of the playoffs that um, we've been waiting for since uh, at least the, um, the 2000s, if not the, the 90s. Since 2011, to be specific. And it, it, Mavs Warriors, not Suns. Mavs Warriors 
and as much as I love LeVar, one of the great, most entertaining characters in sports today, uh, anytime he says something like Zach's going to the Lakers, I got to figure out right, what's he really trying to do, which I'm sure is to promote his son as being even more important to the Bulls. I do not in any way, I'll put this out here right now, believe that Zach Levine is going to go sign with the Lakers. Makes no freaking sense. Uh, and to sign with a team that's aging. I don't even they, I don't even know if they have the cap to sign him. They would have to trade AD. Nobody wants to take AD because he's so injured. He's got a huge contract. Uh, and the, if he wants to make the most money, he's going to stay with the Bulls. Uh, so I think LeVar's got a trick up his sleeve when he tells Cap that. Uh, but uh, uh, that's just me. All right. Uh, we're running out of time. Uh, Miles, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. As always, Miles Camflassen from In These Times, editor-writer. Uh, and no D, uh, D today. He uh, had the day off, so I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Lane Tech High School, DJ Nate. Uh, and as everybody knows, the D and the DJ stands for DeMarvelous. Yes, everybody with the Ben Jaroska Show is DeMarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.